0: Uh, To start, I want to ask a controversial question. How's that to start a sermon? So here it goes. Controversial question. That is, how high should you hang a picture or a photograph on a wall? Uh, okay, all right. Now, now look, hey, uh, I, I think I might have touched a nerve here, but <laughs> look, I know, I know there's a lot of variables to that question, and I could be wrong, but my guess is that many, many couples have had, let's, let's call it a, a robust conversation <laughs> about this topic. Is that true of you? Okay, here, here's, here's another question, a little less controversial, and that is, what is actually hanging on your walls? That is, and you don't have to say it out loud, but think about this, that is, what have you chosen to display in your home? My my guess is if I walked into your home and I looked around at your walls and the things that you've chosen to display, my guess is you have chosen to display something you're proud of. Maybe a really nice picture of your family. Maybe a piece of sports memorabilia. Maybe if I went into some other rooms, I may even see a certificate of some kind of accomplishment somewhere. But my guess is the items you have purposely chosen to display on your wall, no matter how high or how low, were something you are proud of and you want others to see. I mean, I have yet to meet a woman who has chosen to hang a beautiful picture of her family in the corner of her unfinished basement. No. Such pictures are often, where do do you normally see these pictures? Where? where? Living room, above a fireplace, on the mantel, right? We intentionally choose the location where we display those items we value most. Sometimes, like I said, we hang them high. Sometimes we hang them low. And our wives are happy about that. But nevertheless, we all intentionally choose where we want to display those things dearest to us. Faith, today we begin a new series through the book of Ephesians, and it's hard to overstate just how significant this six-chapter New Testament book is. Armitage Robinson, the dean of Westminster from 1902 to 1911, he called this book, quote, the crown of St. Paul's writing." As several commentators have pointed out, Ephesians was John Calvin's favorite letter. Others have referred to it as, quote, the divinest composition of man and the grand canyon of scripture. And as we will see in the coming weeks, there are many significant themes that run throughout this book, many glorious, important themes that run throughout this book. However, as Paul makes clear, I want to argue, this book does have a central message that actually unites all these really important themes. And you know what that, that central message is? It's this, the glory of God displayed through the church. If we were to summarize the central message of Ephesians, it would be the glory of God displayed through the church. Friend, just like you have chosen to display that which is dearest to you, such as a great family picture or a piece of sports memorabilia, you've chosen to display it in a place in your home for all to see, so too God has chosen to display that which is dearest to Him. And you know what that is? His glory. And He's chosen to display it in and through the church. And as we begin our journey through this book, I want you to see how clearly Paul makes this point. He he does so directly in chapter 3, verse 10. After describing the breathtaking and incredible work that Christ has done to save us and how he's then reconciled us one to another, Paul then pens these important words in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, referring to God, God's intent was that now through the what? Church. The manifold wisdom of God, the mysteries of the gospel, His glory, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Then a few verses later, at the end of chapter 3, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. Think of His power, chapter 1 and chapter 2. His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the what? The church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friend, please hear me. Listen, to Tom Brady be glory in Raymond James Stadium. To Aaron Judge, be glory in Yankee Stadium. To Patrick Kane, be glory in the United Center. But friend, please hear me. To God, be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus. Faith, please hear me. The church, this, church is the size of three people, 30, 300, 3,000, it's the local church. That's the stadium where God has chosen. He could have just chosen any place, but the local church is the stadium where God has chosen to display His glory. Not a Bible college, not a seminary, not a campus ministry, not a parachurch ministry. And we're thankful for all of them. But very clearly, God has chosen to display His work In the local church. So, friend, you want to see the glory of God on display? In the words of Nacho Libre, you want a little taste of the glory? (laughs) Go to church. Go to church to see God's mighty power at work in his people. Like I said, whether it's 10 or 10,000. And I cannot overstate how significant this is and how it should really shape our thinking. Not only shape our thinking, but order our values. God loves the local church. God values the local church. Do you? Indeed, I want you to consider how God's glory... Displayed through the church really unites all the doctrines and practices taught in Ephesians. God's glory is displayed not only in his mighty act of saving his people and then reconciling us one to another. That's chapters 1 through 3. But also when the church walks in obedience to Christ's commands and does spiritual battle against evil forces. Chapters 4 through 6. Faith God has purposely chosen to display his glory in and through the local church. This, I want to argue, is the main message based on these texts in Ephesians. Do you know what that means? It means there's a lot we can learn from this book as a church. So if you haven't already, please turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 1. That's page 7 or 976 in that paperback Bible paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. As you're turning there, let me give you just a few introductory remarks. As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. But you happen to know where Paul was when he penned the book of Ephesians. Prison is always a good guess. (laughs) He He wasn't lying on the beach with a tea in his hand. No, he was in prison in Rome around 80, 61 through 62. He actually mentions his imprisonment three times in this letter. And you know why he was in prison? He was in prison because he was being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see here in other letters of Paul, Paul does not complain. Rather, he has joy And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he also has God's wisdom to share with us. So this morning, what we're going to do, as you can see there on the title slide, is we're just going to focus in on the first two verses. But what I want to do, a couple things. I want to challenge you and encourage you to read through this book. Clint and I were talking not too long ago about it. And it doesn't take that long to read through the first six chapters in one sitting. I I would desire us as a church to be soaked in this book. So so read it every week, at least the chapter that we're going to be studying. And what I want to do is, although we're going to be looking at the first two verses, I do want to read chapter 1, verse 1, down to verse 14. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians 1. The first 14 verses. We read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. to the praise of His glory. Amen and amen. How many of you shop at thrift stores like Goodwill? Any of you? I do. Uh, Several years ago, Laura Young was shopping at a Goodwill in Austin, Texas. When she saw something that really... uh, piqued her interest. And know what it was? It was a bust of what appeared to be a Roman general. Now at first, she wasn't so sure if she should get it. Kind of got her interest, but she's like, she just decided to keep shopping. However, right as she was about to leave, she's like, you know what, I'm going to get it. She changed her mind, and she bought it for $34.99. And because it weighed more than 52 pounds... She needed a worker at the store to help carry it out to her car. Little did she know how rare a find she just acquired. Because unbeknownst to Young, you know what she had just purchased? She bought a 2,000-year-old Roman artifact. According to researchers, the bust is believed to be the Roman general Germanicus, or Pompey the Great's son. Historians tell us it was originally kept in the villa of a Bavarian king. Here's a picture of young with the bust. She found that at Goodwill and bought it for $34. Amazing. Now, everyone wants to know, How did this thing get to Austin, Texas? No one knows. (laughs) One theory is that it was taken from a German museum by Allied forces during World War II, and then somehow an American soldier brought it to Texas, but nobody really knows. But get this. This wasn't the first time that Young had picked up something valuable at a thrift store. She previously picked up a Chinese painting worth $63,000 for just a couple of bucks. Can you imagine? Now, think for a moment about this bust, okay? That was in a goodwill, probably maybe on on one of the shelves there. Think of how many people just brushed past it. Think of how many just looked at it and then kept on their merry way. Think of how many people just glanced at it, didn't give it any more thought, and moved on faith I want to submit to you that we can be tempted to do the same thing with the opening two verses of Ephesians that is we can just brush aside brush past Paul's greeting not giving it any serious thought yet to do so would be a costly mistake Indeed, it would be a far greater mistake than passing over a 2,000-year-old ancient artifact. For you know what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus and to us this morning in this opening greeting? He's saying this important truth, and that is, don't underestimate Jesus. This, I want to argue, is Paul's burden in these opening verses don't underestimate the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, Jesus is more glorious, He is more active, He is more gracious than we think. Yet oftentimes we underestimate just how great and glorious He is. So in this greeting, I want to argue, if we have ears to hear, Paul directs our attention to three life-giving truths that demonstrate and that prove why we should not underestimate Jesus. And the first is this. Don't underestimate the power of His will. Look again at verse 1. When Paul writes, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is going to be a really important phrase as we study the book of Ephesians. By the will of God. How many of you uh, like to make a to do list? Oh, yes. You're my people, okay? I mean, come on now. Is it not satisfying? You write everything out. And then through the day, you just get out, mark it off. Mark it off. Just getting stuff done, right? Yes, amen. I hear that. I, hear, I see that. <laughs> but you know what? If I have to be honest with you, and I'm just being really candid here, I almost am never able to get everything done on my to-do list. Anyone else can relate to this? Look, plans change. Interruptions happen. Things take a lot longer than expected, and honestly, can be kind of frustrating. But you know who always gets his to-do list completed each and every day? God. Faith. Everything he plans comes to pass. As we learned last week in Psalm one fifteen three, God is in heaven doing all that he pleases. And notice what Paul says about his apostleship here. He's an apostle by the what? The will of who? God. Scripture, we come to discover, speaks of two wills of God. There is God's will of decree and God's will of command. God's will of command is exactly as it sounds. It is God's commands. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read this. Paul writes, For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. God's will here is God's will of command. His command for his people is that they abstain from sexual immorality. Now, sadly, God's will of command can be broken. Even this command. However, Scripture also speaks of God's will of decree. This cannot be broken. Nothing can frustrate God's will of decree. And in the verse I just read, Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul is speaking of God's will of decree. That is, Paul became an apostle because God willed it to happen. God did not ask or consult Paul. He did not ask for his opinion. He did not say, hey, what's your timeline, Paul? No, God chose Paul to be an apostle even before, hear me, Paul was born. And he consider what Paul writes about himself in Galatians 1, 15. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. God willed, even before Paul was born, that he would be an apostle. Listen to me. It was God's doing, not Paul's. And it's instructive that Paul begins this letter by identifying himself as one who has been chosen according to God's will. You know why? Because in the verses that follow, Paul says the same thing about our salvation. We, we read the first 14 verses. Consider what Paul writes in verse 5. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. When he says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his what? His will. Christian, the reason why you've been predestined to be adopted as a son or a daughter through Jesus Christ is because God willed it to happen. He decreed it, and nothing can thwart his plans. Consider what he says a few verses later in verse 11. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his what? His will. Notice God is working all things according to the counsel of his triune will. Nothing can frustrate God's will. So just as our salvation is the result of God's will of decree, so too is Paul's apostleship. And consider just for a moment how powerful God's will of decree is. Paul, a man who once hated and persecuted Christians, now by the will of God, became an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's power. So here's the application for us. First, it's to rejoice in God's sovereign power. Christian, rejoice in God's sovereign power because if it weren't for God's strong and mighty will of decree, none of us would be saved. None of us would be. But then secondly, if Paul is writing this book as an apostle, then we ought to, then we ought to receive it as being from the very words of Christ. As John Stott has written, He says, Paul had not volunteered for this ministry, nor had the church appointed him. On the contrary, his apostleship derived from the will of God and from the choice and commission of Jesus Christ. If this be so, as I for one believe, then we must listen to the message of Ephesians with appropriate attention and humility. May that be said of us, Faith Community Church, as we embark on the study of this book. But then second, I want to suggest that based on the language that Paul uses in this greeting, that he doesn't want us to underestimate the purpose, God's purpose for his people. Look again at the second line of verse 2. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, He's making a statement there. And then he says something about us. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, if, if you were to walk into our garage, you'd find a lot of things, but you'd also find over a dozen hockey sticks. We have hockey sticks of all shapes, curves, and sizes, and they are placed along the back wall. These are the sticks we use to play street hockey out in our driveway. Yet, if you were to look a little closer in my garage, and I really wouldn't want you to do that, but if you were to look a little closer in my garage, you would find two more hockey sticks tucked high away on a top shelf. They aren't with the other dozen or so street hockey sticks. No, these two other sticks I have set aside exclusively for playing ice hockey and nothing else. I've set them aside. They're distinct from the other ones. Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. And you know what that term saint means? It simply means to be set apart or plucked out and set apart. Just like those two hockey sticks have been set apart for the sole purpose of ice hockey. In the Old Testament, God set Israel apart from other nations. They were God's prized possession. Well, in the same way God has set apart... Those who are in Christ. As one commentator has said, Paul bestows upon all his pagan-born hearers, that's us, and those in Ephesus, a privilege formerly reserved for Israel for special, especially priestly, servants of God. Think of it like this. Remember when you played a game as a kid with all the other neighborhood kids and, or from, from school, you're going to play a game together, and you all had to pick teams, right? And there'd be two captains, and then everyone would line up, and then they'd pick teams, and, oh, man, you hated to be picked last, right? Who, who wanted to be picked Like that was, that was the worst thing in the world. But, oh, man, to be picked first? Or, man, just in the top five, Right? What a great thought, right? Christian, it is not an overstatement to say that God purposely picked you to be on His team. He has set you apart. However, it's not for a neighborhood game He has chosen you for. No, He has set you apart for a specific purpose. And that is that you would live for Him. For this is what it means to be a saint, to be set apart. If you're set apart for God, that means you are then to live for God. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for Christ. And let me just ask you, Faith Community Church, what would it look like for you to take seriously this, this idea and for you to live for Christ and not yourself this afternoon? What would it look like for you to be diligent to fulfill your purpose as a saint? To many of the guys here, how about when you play golf this afternoon in the scramble? What would it look like for you to live for Christ and not yourself? Or how about when you go into work on Monday? How can you be faithful as Paul encourages you to be? Christian, Jesus has given you a purpose. And here's my question. Do you underestimate its importance in your life? Do you underestimate the fact that you have been called a saint and all that it implies for you? Finally, don't underestimate the peace he provides. Look at verse 2. When he says, Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you notice, where does this grace and peace come from? It comes from who? Does it come from Paul? Does it come from your friends? Does it come from food? Does it come from leisure and entertainment? Now, where does grace and peace, the peace we need and want, where does it come from? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because no one comes into this world with peace. No, due to our sin, we come into this world with great turmoil. Indeed, we come into this world under God's judgment for our sin. And this is why we need Jesus. For in Jesus, God's grace has appeared, as Paul talks about in Titus 2. And what did Christ do? It's what we celebrate this morning. It's what Steve articulated before we took the Lord's Supper. Praise the Lord that God the Father sent God the Son who walked this earth who lived the perfect life we failed to live, and then he went to the cross to die as a sacrifice to bear the punishment we are owed for our sin. Then three days later, rising triumphant from the grave, defeating sin and death, and proving himself who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Because of what Christ has done, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension... Those who put their trust in Christ, they get to now have peace. The incredible offer of Scripture, friend, is that you can be forgiven of your sin. You can have peace with God. That is, you can be reconciled with your Creator simply by faith. That is, you trust that Christ's work on your behalf was sufficient to save you. And, friend, can I ask, do you know this salvation? Do you know this peace? If not, let today be the day when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ. And for those of you who do belong to God the Father through Jesus Christ, please hear me, don't underestimate or undervalue the peace you now have. Christian, rejoice that you've been reconciled to your Creator. Rejoice that there's no more enmity between you and God. Rejoice that you're no longer His enemy, but you're His friend. Rejoice that your sins are forgiven and your eternal destiny is secure. Rejoice that you are now a son and daughter of God. Rejoice that you have a God that will never leave you nor forsake you. Rejoice in the fact that because of what Christ has done, you have peace that passes all understanding. Don't underestimate it. Don't undervalue it. Faith, I don't know where you've chosen to display that which is most important to you, but God has chosen to display that which is most important to him, his glory, in the local church. May we love the local church as much as God does, and may we not underestimate Jesus, but may we esteem him. Amen? Let's pray.